So then I went into the research and I tried to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and try to find out what have other researchers already done that I could replicate. The answer had nothing to do with sugar. The answer was so far away from sugar, it was embarrassing. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm here to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. It's now undisputed that insulin resistance is the root cause of metabolic dysfunction leading to almost every single chronic disease. But are we fully clear on what is causing insulin resistance in the first place that leads to high blood sugar levels, weight gain, and the ensuing chronic diseases like heart disease and dementia? Well, that is the million-dollar question that Dr. Cyrus and Robbie are going to be answering today, who are co-authors in the New York Times bestselling book, Mastering Diabetes. Now, the answer, well, it may surprise you, given the nutritional climate that we are living in today. The answer definitely challenged a little bit of the dogma that I believed surrounding insulin resistance, and it may challenge you too. Now, before I bring these two co-authors on, I want to quickly sing their praises. Cyrus Kambata is a PhD and the New York Times bestselling co-author of Mastering Diabetes. He has helped more than 10,000 people reverse the underlying cause of insulin resistance. Now, he has a PhD in nutritional biochemistry from UC Berkeley, and he is both an expert in type 1 and type 2 diabetes and has been living with type 1 diabetes since 2002. And he's reduced his insulin by more than 40% using a food-first approach. Now, Robbie is an international recognized diabetes expert and, again, the co-author of Mastering Diabetes, who has helped countless people reverse insulin resistance and take back full control of their metabolic health. He is also living with type 1 diabetes since 2000 and currently has a hemoglobin A1C of 5.4% and a time and range of above 90% while maintaining an active lifestyle. So let's welcome these two diabetes rock stars to the show. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, my co-leaders in ending metabolic issues and blood sugar issues. So great to have you both on the show. Thank you for having us here. We appreciate it. Yes, yes, yes. Since there are both, since there are two of you, two co-authors in the incredible New York Times bestselling book, Mastering Diabetes, I cannot tell you how excited I'm at. We already, we've already had a conversation on top of conversations, um, but I would love to just have you both kick off your own story as to why, why this is the work you want to do in the world and what was that defining moment where you knew that this was what you wanted to help people solve in terms of their health journey? When I made a change to my own personal diet, basically the, the short story here is that I was diagnosed with type one diabetes in the year 2002. And I was kind of like a, a pretty healthy guy an athlete, you know, I quote, thought I was quote unquote eating healthy. And then I get to 2002 and all of a sudden I get diagnosed with three autoimmune conditions, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, alopecia universalis, which is why I, I lost all my hair, eyelashes, eyebrows, ear hair, nose hair, nothing, no hair on my head, can't grow a beard that all vanished. And then type one diabetes as the icing on the cake. So three autoimmune conditions within six months. And I was like, Whoa, now I'm an official chronic disease patient. I'm only 22 years old. What the heck just happened to me? Right. So at that point I started to like dig for more information and try and understand like, well, did I do this? Did someone else do this? Is this part of my genetics? Is it in my family? You know, am I drinking too much beer? Am I not playing enough sports? Right. Well, what is it? 
And so in the process of trying to dig for all that information, I opened my mind to the idea that if I were to eat a plant-based diet, that my life might actually unfold in a more positive direction. So when I finally made that transition to eating a plant-based diet, my blood glucose control became so much simpler. All right, my blood glucose control before was very challenging. Newly diagnosed person with type one diabetes generally has no idea what the heck to do, how much insulin at what time of the day, how much for dinner, how much for breakfast, how much for lunch, how much when I play sports, how much before, how much in the middle of the night. Like it's just, it's a wild, wild west. So eating a plant-based diet gave me control of my blood glucose and it lowered my insulin use, which was awesome, right? So the reason I'm telling you this is because that was 2003, one year into my journey. And in the year 2003, I got this giant epiphany right off the bat. As soon as I made the transition where I was like, what the heck is going on? I'm eating this way. I'm living this new plant-based lifestyle. And all of a sudden I feel amazing. I have way more energy. I can be more athletic. My blood glucose is under control. I'm using less insulin. I'm more hydrated. I can sleep better. My anxiety has gone away. I literally feel reborn. This is unbelievable, right? But yet the rest of the world was saying the exact opposite thing. The rest of the world was saying carbs are bad for you. Don't eat carbs. You're diabetic. You're allergic to carbs, right? And even the non-diabetic individuals were saying the same thing. And the people who were my closest friends and family members who told me that by eating a plant-based diet, that I was going to hurt myself, that I was going to do some damage to my body and that I should really consider eating more meat and more fish and more chicken. And I was like, this is backwards. This is so backwards. So it was at that moment in time in 2003, where all of a sudden I was like, there was this light bulb that went off in my head. And I was like, wait a minute, there is a massive, massive opportunity here to be able to educate other people and help other people that are going through a similar process, whether it's type one or pre-diabetes or type two diabetes or struggling with their weight and give them an opportunity to also learn the same thing that I had learned and experiment with eating a plant-based diet. And that was the light bulb that went off that all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, this is the inspiration I'm looking for. This is the direction I want to take my life. I'm going to run with it. Mm, that's powerful. The, you know, the one that you discovered, one that you got three autoimmune conditions. I mean, I know that often people, when they start to see one, it can happen that we'll see more than one, but three so quickly at 22 years old. Yeah. I'd have a lot of questions too, as to what was going on. Um, and then that you kind of figured out the easiest way to manage blood sugar without having to sweat it. Cause I know for some people they're constantly playing with that. Um, now when it comes to a plant-based diet, I know that people talk a lot about carbs and, and carbs are bad. And I see women all the time with insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia. They're trying to transition. They're trying to figure it out. And when they do eat carbs, potentially it's processed carbs. You know, a lot of it, a lot of the carbs on the market are processed carbs. They, they, they do have struggles with that. One of the things that I know you educate people is how to segue from being, you know, having hyperinsulinemia, having an insulin block to, you know, and, and being all over the place, like variability on their blood sugar is everywhere. They're having spikes and crashes, spikes and crashes. How, how do we get from a place where grapes are spiking me to they're not? <laughs> this is one of our favorite things in the entire world to talk about. So for everybody listening, it's, it's Robbie talking now for people who, are, uh, who don't know who's talking. But before I get that, I'm going to share my story real quick because it kind of leads into this topic. 
I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 12, just about to turn 13. So that was in 2000. So I've been living with type 1 for now 22 plus years. And my older brother actually also had type 1 diabetes. So my family was familiar with the condition and they wanted to make sure we had the best medical care possible. So they took us to the Mayo Clinic and nobody at the Mayo Clinic said anything about reversing insulin resistance and how that could help improve my quality of life then and reduce my chronic disease risk into the future and get that more stable blood glucose, which Cyrus was talking about, what he, how he experienced that. So nobody said anything. Eventually, I come across this information on my own. I was on a ketogenic plant-based diet before I transitioned to the low-fat plant-based whole food diet we talk about now. And so when I was doing that ketogenic diet, I needed a lot of insulin for a small amount of carbohydrate, okay? And then when I changed to this low-fat diet, my insulin sensitivity improved by 900%. And this is where I had a similar experience to Cyrus, where I, I'm having this realization of what's going on in my body and like, wow, like this is, this is powerful. How can I get this information to other people? So my epiphany happened. I was a freshman in college at the University of Florida. And that's when I decided I wanted to teach this information to others. I wanted to help people. And that began a journey to go work at Fork Serve Knives and launch that brand and then eventually Mastering Diabetes. And here we are today. But to answer your question, okay, and we are both you know, so passionate about this is because we're both living with type 1 diabetes. We have this data of what lifestyle decisions make insulin work more efficiently and which lifestyle decisions make insulin work less efficiently. So we count the total amount of carbohydrates we're consuming. We monitor our blood glucose regularly, and we know how much insulin we need to inject in order to monitor, manage our blood glucose. The general public, they don't know how much insulin is being secreted based on any given day, any given meal. We know this meal by meal. And it's that insight that changed my life. I said, wow, I know everybody agrees. The science is clear. Insulin resistance is the cause of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. We have over 100 million people living with either prediabetes or type 2, and we know the cause, and I am seeing insulin resistance reversed in my own body. I've seen it happen, and I see it continue to stay insulin sensitive. My, my tissue is insulin sensitive every single meal. Like This is reiterated over and over again every day when it's time to eat food. So- you're asking the most common question. There's really the elephant in the room when it comes to diabetes. You have these two camps that are just absolutely fighting with each other. And we don't like fighting. We want to just share information and let people come and decide what do they want to do based from a lot of education and understanding of the peer-reviewed literature and why this topic is so confusing. So you're exactly right. Somebody will eat some grapes, they'll eat a banana, they might try a potato, they might have a bowl of quinoa and they see their blood glucose spike. They're like, I just ate a banana. I tested myself. My blood glucose is 250. How in the world can you tell me that bananas are good for me? How can you tell me that it wasn't the banana that caused this problem? And we come in and say, you know what? Actually, the banana is not the problem. It's what you ate prior, which put your body in a metabolic state of living with insulin resistance, where you could not metabolize the glucose even in a whole food. So it's a warning sign. So if anybody listening to this show has that experience, that is a red flag. Before things are getting worse and worse, for you to say, wait a minute, 
it's really important. Like, just think about it to yourself. Like, it's really important to be able to process the glucose in whole foods. Avoiding those foods is not the solution. So I'll throw it back to Cyrus to explain the biochemistry of why a low-fat diet makes you more insulin sensitive. Yeah. So when I started studying biochemistry at UC Berkeley in the year 2007, I, I put myself basically back to graduate school because I had an undergraduate degree in engineering and I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm, I'm a mediocre engineer at best and I can continue doing this thing, but like, I'm not going to change people's lives by like contributing to like the auto industry or like building a bridge, you know, instead, what, if I really want to change people's lives, then I got to go get myself some education. So I, I enrolled in PhD programs to like understand human biology and then use my personal experience in combination with this new education that I was getting. And I ended up choosing to study what's called nutritional biochemistry. So it's like super nerd nutrition. I mean, everything you ever wanted to know, it's basically like the molecular and cellular biology world meets the nutrition world in the middle. And you basically get to understand how food can either promote or reverse chronic disease. That's the way that I like to think about it. So when I was studying there uh, in the year 2007, I was given a thesis topic by my advisor. My advisor is actually the world's expert in carbohydrate metabolism. His name is Dr. Mark Hellerstein. He's the Goodwill Hunting, like a real version of Goodwill Hunting. And so under his guidance and supervision, he basically said to me, listen, you're going to become an expert in insulin resistance. I want you to learn everything that there is about how you can induce it in laboratory animals and then how you can rescue it. And you have your choice of exactly what you want to do. You can induce it using standard methodology, and then you can reverse it using either calorie restriction or intermittent fasting or manipulating the macronutrient ratio of your diet or exercise or some combination thereof. It's up to you. You, you do it, you figure out the research and I'll help you in that process. And I was like, great. Sounds like a plan. So when I started delving into the research to try and figure out, well, what can I do to make these animals insulin resistant? So the entire time that I, like, as at the beginning of the stages of this process, I was like, all right, well, insulin resistance, it's caused by sugar, right? If you open the American Diabetes Association website, it tells you to lower your carb intake, right? Because carbs equal sugar and sugar makes you fat and sugar makes you more diabetic. So I'm sure sugar has something to do with it, right? And then I kept on reading. I was like, oh, well, I'm sure it's something to do with fructose and maybe high fructose corn syrup because those things are clearly not good for you. So they're going to make you more insulin resistant. So in my head, I thought to myself, well, if I just feed these animals a high sugar diet or a high fructose diet or a high refined fructose diet, then all of a sudden they should magically develop insulin resistance. And then I can try and rescue that once it's already created. So then I went into the research and I tried to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and try and find out what have other researchers already done that I could replicate. The answer had nothing to do with sugar. The answer was so far away from sugar. It was embarrassing, right? What the papers demonstrated to me, it was all about disordered lipid metabolism, okay? Disordered lipid metabolism, not disordered carbohydrate metabolism, disordered lipid metabolism. And what that means is that the, the standard protocols for developing insulin resistance, not only in laboratory animals, which included mice and rats, but also in humans was to feed a diet that contained a high percentage of fat, particularly saturated fat. In mice and rats, you do it for eight weeks consistently, boom, magically insulin resistant, no questions asked. In humans, you can do it for a much shorter period of time and they can develop insulin resistance within a week. And so I was like, wait a minute, you're telling me that fat 
causes insulin resistance. Oh, wait a minute. That's right. Because that's what I've experienced in my body. And I've been doing that since 2003. Yes, you're absolutely right. That's the way to do it. So this set the stage for me to be able to perform a whole collection of experiments where I was inducing insulin resistance in these laboratory animals using a high fat diet. Suffice it to say that over the course of the next five years, I began to learn that inducing insulin resistance is actually so easy. It's shocking. It's shocking how easy it is to create a state of insulin resistance. And okay, fine. If you're in a laboratory setting and you're sort of doing it in a very controlled environment, fine. That's one thing. But if you extrapolate that to try and figure out what other people are doing in the real world, the question is, is what human beings do in the world, does it mimic what we were doing in the laboratory or is it different? And I would, what I came to learn is that it's both similar and different simultaneously. It's similar in the sense that human beings eat a high fat diet and most people have no idea. Most people have absolutely no idea that they're eating a high fat diet. So a high fat diet, according to our knowledge and our research is any diet that contains in excess of approximately 20% of calories as fat. So we recommend to people to eat lower than 15% of your total calories as fat, but 20% and higher is generally considered high fat. And in the world in which we live today, low carbohydrate diets, paleo diets, ketogenic diets, or any version thereof, these diets are like 50, 60, 70, 80% total fat in their diet, which means that they're not only high fat diets, but they're very high fat diets. In addition to that, the standard American diet, okay, just the standard American diet with French fries and pizza and hot dogs and pancakes and crackers for goodness sakes, (laughs) crackers and cookies and chips and pastas and sodas and salad dressings and and, uh, you know, sugar sweetened beverages, like the stuff that you get in the grocery store, in the middle of the grocery store that comes in packages and and, and cans and bottles. If you do a sort of like average daily intake from the bulk of Americans, what you'll find is that the average fat intake in a standard American setting is 42%. Okay. So your standard American is eating approximately call it 40% fat in their diet, which according to our standards is very, it's high fat. But then the recommendations amongst the low carbohydrate community, especially the ketogenic community is to go even higher to go from 40 to 50 to 60 to 70 to 75 to 80% fat in your diet. So if most people who are eating standard American diet are already eating a high fat diet, and then the low carbohydrate community encourages you to even higher fat diet, that means de facto that all of those people are suspect for insulin resistance. They are at risk for the development of insulin resistance. And if you delve further into the research and kind of get to the molecular mechanisms that actually underlie the process, what you'll find is that when you consume fat in food, okay, you find fat in food in many different types of foods. Meat, including white meat and red meat, contains a significant amount of fat. Even if it's labeled as being low fat, it is still uh, proportionately high in fat. We got dairy products, we got eggs, we got processed meats. Then we also have seed oils, huge contributor. Okay, Seed oils, olive oil, and um, coconut oil put in that category. And then if you're eating from the plant world, you got nuts, seeds, avocados, coconuts, and olives. Okay, So regardless of what combination of these types of foods that you're consuming, these foods contain fat as a molecule called triglyceride. Triglyceride is basically three fatty acids attached to a glycerol molecule. It's a packaged unit. Uh, Triglyceride is basically a long-term storage form of fat. And when you consume fat from foods, you're you're eating the triglyceride. So those triglycerides basically enter your mouth. They travel down your esophagus. They get inside of your stomach. 
they start to uh, undergo a little bit of a denaturing and a little bit of like unfolding inside of your stomach. They get inside of your small intestine, which is the next compartment. Your small intestine basically is a, uh, it's a bioreactor. And the bioreactor has a whole collection of enzymes that are present inside of that chamber that are manufactured either by your small intestine itself or by your liver or by your pancreas. And the purpose of these digestive enzymes is to basically start to digest, AKA cut and break down large components into small components. So the triglyceride, the three fatty acids get pulled off of the glycerol molecule. The three fatty acids then get absorbed through the walls of your small intestine. They enter your blood, they enter your lymph first, and then they enter your blood and they've got one of these things called chylomicron particles. Okay. So don't worry, this isn't going to be on the quiz, but the idea is that these fatty acid molecules end up inside of these little spaceships called chylomicrons. And there's, there's trillions of them in circulation. And these chylomicron particles then have a job and their job is to distribute these fatty acid molecules that came in from your mouth somewhere, go put it somewhere under normal circumstances. So, so in, in an ideal setting, what would happen is that these fatty acid molecules would get put directly into your adipose tissue, your fat tissue, because that's the right place to keep them. From a biological perspective, your fat tissue is actually the safest place to keep fat. It is, even though human beings don't like fat tissue, we think of fat tissue societally as being bad, right? Because when you look at someone who has fat tissue on them, it doesn't look good, right? And fat, you know, most people would say, oh yeah, I got a little extra fat around my midsection or I have it in my butt or I have it in my neck or I have it in my armpits or I have it in my triceps and it sucks. I don't want this stuff, get rid of it. But from an actual biological perspective, adipose tissue, if you had a bunch of fatty acid material, put it in adipose tissue because that's the right place to put it. That's the safe place to keep it. So from an enzymatic perspective and from a mechanical perspective, that's exactly where it should be. The problem is that when you're consuming a diet that contains a significant amount of fat, there's a good portion, a good proportion of that fat that gets put into your adipose tissue, but then there's a spillover and the spillover ends up going inside of your liver and inside of your muscle. Those are the next two tissues that end up absorbing those fatty acids as a sort of byproduct. So your liver ends up absorbing fatty acids. Your muscle ends up absorbing fatty acids. And that's okay. As long as the total amount of fatty acid in your diet is low, but when you're eating a high fat diet, then your liver and muscle become overwhelmed with excess fat within a short period of time. And that period of time can be days. It can literally be two days, three days, four days, seven days. And if you're eating a high fat diet for just a short period of time, what ends up happening is that your liver and muscle become overwhelmed with too much excess fat accumulation beyond their biological design. So now you're in a state where you're eating a high fat diet because you read in a magazine that eating a high fat diet is good for you. So you've been eating a lot of eggs and bacon and cheese and milk and butter, and you've been trying to avoid eating fruits and vegetables and potatoes. And so now you're in a high fat setting. Now you're consuming a significant amount of triglyceride. Now you're stuffing fatty acids inside of your adipose tissue and your liver and your muscles simultaneously. Now, here's where it gets interesting. If in that state, you decide that you're going to eat something that's carbohydrate rich, like one banana literally one banana, or it could be even like a plate of black beans, or it could be a, a small bowl of quinoa. Okay. I'm not talking about a significant amount of carbohydrate energy. I mean, like 20 grams, 30 grams, something like that. The glucose from those carbohydrate molecules gets basically liberated from those carbohydrate chains. And the glucose has to find a way to get inside of tissues. So 
glucose is put into your blood and it's in circulation, but glucose can't get inside of your liver and inside of your muscle, which are the, the two target organs. Actually, your liver, your muscle, and your brain are the three target organs for glucose. Glucose can get inside of your brain effectively for free because it's, it's designed that way. But glucose cannot get inside of your liver for free and glucose cannot get inside of your muscle for free. Glucose requires an escort and the escort is known as insulin. So when glucose appears inside of your blood, insulin is manufactured from your pancreas. So insulin's job is to go to your liver and go to your muscle and say, knock, knock, there's glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it up? It's right there. It's right now. And your liver and muscle can respond by either saying, sure, sounds like a plan. Give it to me right now. Or your liver and muscle can respond by saying, no, sorry, I'm not interested. Now's not the time. And what happens in this, in this state where you have excess lipid already accumulated from all the other fat rich stuff that you've been eating is that when insulin knocks on the door and says, Hey, liver, Hey, muscle, there's glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it up? Both of those tissues respond by saying, uh, -uh not interested right now. And I cannot take it up. And the reason for that is because I have so much accumulated excess fatty acids that came in from those eggs and from the chicken and from the red meat and from the dairy products that you ate yesterday and you ate the day before. Let me deal with this stuff first. When I don't have as much of this stuff, I will then accept the glucose. But right now, because I have too much energy inside of me, my doors are closed to insulin and my doors are closed to glucose. Go away. So as a result of that, glucose gets trapped. And glucose ends up staying trapped inside of your blood because it has no exit route. It can't get off of the highway, if you will, and get into a town. It can't, it can't leave the circulatory system very effectively. And insulin also gets trapped because insulin is trying to dock, literally to land on insulin receptors. There are trillions of insulin receptors all over your liver and muscle. And insulin can't even dock onto those receptors because these cells have created a self-defense mechanism that is literally shielding them from the effects of insulin. So insulin ends up getting trapped as well, which means that when you're eating a small amount of carbohydrate in this setting, not only do you create a state of high blood glucose or hyperglycemia, but you also create a state of high insulin, which is called hyperinsulinemia. So within a few hours of eating that meal, you become hyperglycemic and hyperinsulinemic simultaneously. And both of those are very dangerous, especially if those two conditions persist for two hours, four hours, six hours during the day. And then eventually they can last for eight hours, 10 hours, 20 hours. It becomes a problem because hyperinsulinemia and hyperglycemia, high blood glucose and high insulin are two major risk factors for chronic disease and especially, especially cardiovascular disease. So this is the sort of metabolic traffic jam that is created by a diet that is high in fat. And what I want people to understand, regardless of remembering all of the fancy terminology and who says what to what is eating a high fat diet creates a state of insulin resistance in the state of insulin resistance, eating carbohydrate rich anything. It could be whole carbohydrate rich foods, or it could be refined carbohydrate foods. I don't care. Putting carbohydrates into your mouth when you are living in an insulin resistant state will not work. And as a result of that, your blood glucose is going to go high. Your insulin levels are going to go high. You're going to throw your hands up in the air and you're going to say, potatoes are bad for me. Crackers are bad for me. 
Soda is bad for me. Bread is bad for me. Chips, fruits, name it. I can't eat any of that stuff. And as a result of that, you're likely to go say, you know what? When I eat those foods, my glucose goes high. Therefore, I'm not going to eat those foods. I'm just going to eat more meat, more chicken, more fish, more dairy products. And guess what? That reinforces insulin resistance and you become more insulin resistant over the course of time. And that can then spin out of control. And over the course of six months to a year to two years to four years to five years and so on and so forth, the insulin resistance ends up setting the stage for heart disease, for an advanced risk for the development of cancer, and for an advanced risk for the development of many autoimmune conditions as well. So you're flirting with, with danger when you enter the insulin resistance pathology. And unless you identify it and reverse it using your diet, you are headed in the direction of increased chronic disease risk. Okay. So, and, and yes, there's so much, you know, we've been navigating this journey of understanding insulin resistance and diabetes. And, you know, I love that you're speaking into what people are seeing when they're wearing the continuous glucose monitors, they're probably already experiencing some level of insulin resistance. And so when they're eating any of these carb focused foods, whether it's grapes or it's bananas or it's a green smoothie or it is crackers or it's sweet potato, because there's already some level of insulin resistance and basically glucose in the blood, we're seeing those spikes. We're seeing those. Where you're saying it's really coming from was the many years of not even realizing that you've been consuming a higher fat diet, even if you weren't even trying to consume a higher fat diet, but especially if you are now consuming a higher fat diet, higher protein diet, because everyone's pointing you in that direction. You nailed it. The, the way that we like to, by the way, that was, a, that was a very good summary. No questions asked. One of the things we'd like to say is we say, it's not that you can't eat carbohydrate rich foods. But if you're finding that it is challenging to eat carbohydrate-rich foods and your blood glucose goes high, it's because of everything you ate before that carbohydrate-rich food. So don't blame the banana. Don't blame the messenger. Look at the stuff that you ate over the preceding 24 hours to week and identify how much total dietary fat came in from that collection of foods. And once you see it, and once you recognize that your baseline diet is actually high fat, that is the diet that caused the traffic jam in the first place. You have to get rid of that traffic jam first. And then when you get rid of that traffic jam, all of a sudden you can increase your carbohydrate intake because your carbohydrate tolerance goes up. And now you're in a completely different metabolic state. I'm really glad you brought up CGMs because these continuous glucose monitors are confusing a lot of people. Okay. And sending them, unfortunately, towards the opposite path that we're talking about here. They'll wear the CGM, they'll eat the banana, they see their number goes higher than they want it to go, then they just stop eating carbohydrate-rich foods and just focus on eating keeping it low-carb. And that does bring down your blood glucose as long as you don't add in the whole carbohydrate-rich foods. So I understand why people are so confused because one thing to know about diabetes is it's one of the very few conditions where you can self-monitor day by day. If you have cancer, if you have heart disease, you can't just eat a meal and test yourself and see, oh, well, what's going on? And then try and make some your own decisions. So it is very confusing. But just like Cyrus says, it takes a little bit of time and you have to understand the importance of addressing the root cause. And then you can see the stable blood glucose readings that you're looking for while eating whole carbohydrate-rich foods. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've <laughs> I've worn a CGM. Uh, like a lot of my audience is wearing them, and it's one thing to say. Obviously, we, we you know people are definitely concerned about bananas, but I wouldn't say they're as concerned about banana as as probably eating highly processed foods and then finding oh. That highly processed food, I had no idea it was going to have as much of a response on my body as it did. I kind of had an idea, but like now I see it. But again, it's, you know, we're looking at blood sugar, not, we're not looking at the, the fat composition part of it. So I want to, I want to speak into it, you know, cause we've obviously we're living in a kind of a keto paleo world and you were operating, eating a ketotarian diet but even still finding that your insulin levels were all over the place, were more on the, I wouldn't say resistant, but you definitely had to control them more. You're talking about plant-based fats. Yeah, so I, in that case, I personally was on a plant-based ketogenic diet. I was getting my calories from oils, from nuts and seeds. I had to limit the amount of bell peppers I could consume because that was too many grams of carbohydrate in that. I would eat like, you know, take, I read a lot of greens. Okay. It was a very nutrient dense diet from that perspective. I would take celery, dip it in almond butter. But again, in this situation, because I'm living with type one diabetes, I have the ability to see, okay, how many units of insulin did it take to metabolize the glucose that I was consuming? And that's what I could see. And that was a one-to-one ratio. So for every gram of glucose I consumed, I needed to inject one unit of total insulin. And then when I transitioned to a low-fat plant-based whole food diet, for every 10 grams of glucose I consume, I have to inject one unit of insulin. So it's a 900% change in insulin sensitivity. The reason this matters is because, just like Cyrus was talking about earlier, insulin resistance, it's the central node in this laundry list of conditions, right? So When you're insulin resistant, you're increasing your risk for heart disease, cancer, retinopathy, neuropathy, Alzheimer's disease, also known as type 3 diabetes today, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. And everybody here, you know, impacted by any form of diabetes, you have to understand the number one cause of death for people living with any form of diabetes is heart disease. And that is 100% preventable. And just like, you know, type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes, 100% preventable. And if you can focus on one thing, it would be becoming more insulin sensitive by optimizing your nutrition, your movement, your sleep, intermittent fasting, if that is something you want to do. So insulin sensitivity really is a really important topic to focus on. Yeah, no, I agree. So I want to just dissect this a little bit more. And I, I get I get the science. And, you know, it's really interesting. I knew that deregulated fat metabolism was playing a big role in insulin resistance. But I figured that both were. I figured that processed refined sugar was playing some kind of role. And maybe it was because it's combined with, with you know, seed oils, with fat. I think about the ultra processed foods that are combining both. That, that you can't escape both. There's going to be sugar and fat in these foods. What I would love to do is I would love to, to speak into, in all of the research that you guys have both looked at, and I know that fats to some degree are needed in the body for at least our lipid membranes, the very least, uh, to propagate information with our neurons and peripheral nervous system. What I would love to know is what type of fat have you found in the dosage that's appropriate, the 20% or less, is the safest fat that we can consume. 
Okay, great question. So let's go backwards here because you were saying you thought that both sugar as well as excess fatty acids can set the stage for insulin resistance. And the truth is that you're right. So the story that I just told you earlier is that, you know, excess fatty acids are the culprit and those are the culprits that's used in the research setting. And that's what the standard American diet and the ketogenic community and the low carbohydrate community uh, suffers from. And that is a true statement. But I also do want to be very clear here. Eating a diet that contains refined sugars is not something that we would recommend. It's not something that most health experts would recommend, regardless of what camp you come from, right? And the truth is that, yeah, if you look in the research and you try and figure out what effect do refined sweeteners have on insulin resistance, the answer is a lot. So if you're consuming refined sugars like table sugar, literally sucrose, which is glucose plus fructose bonded together, or high fructose corn syrup, or any number of other artificial sweeteners like dextrose, mannose, um, xylose, sucralose, any of these uh, sugar alcohols, a lot of these are implicated in the, uh, the development of insulin resistance specifically inside of your liver. Yes. Okay. So yes. if you were to eat those sugars, though, then I, and I use the word sugar when I refer to those because they are truly like refined sugars that Plural. come from a manufacturing There's process. a lot of them. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Yeah. Like a lot of things that ends in the, in, and in the letter O S E O O S. Okay. Those refined sugars can elicit insulin resistance predominantly in your liver. And that's not a good thing. No questions asked, but a high fat diet will do more damage to your liver and a high fat diet will not only damage your liver, it will also damage your muscle. And the combination of damaging your liver plus your muscle sets the stage for insulin resistance. And that's the, that is what most people suffer from is excess lipid consumption. But you know, to take it to the next level, the third dimension is what happens if you have high sugar? Okay, fine. What happens if you have high fat? The third dimension is what most people do. They have high sugar and high fat simultaneously. And that is a recipe for a complete disaster. So the answer is yes, your, your instincts were right. What I want people to understand is that a high fat diet is a more powerful way, a faster way, a more repeatable way to develop insulin resistance. That's what most people do. Unbeknownst to them, this has been happening. Unbe well, I think unbeknownst because I don't think people realize how much fat they're consuming Yeah. in general. Like, let's say they're not focused on keto or they're not focused on paleo, just the day-to-day -day eating, let's say, a slightly healthier version of the standard American diet, let's just say, which I think a lot of people are trying to be in that camp. You know, people who say, I, I eat pretty healthy, <laughs> I think still land in the higher, definitely higher fat, higher processed fat category, on top of the fact that they're also re consuming refined sugars. Exactly right. So, so you, you, you know, that, um, which is that most people unbeknownst to them are consuming a high fat diet, but, but also I do want to point out the fact that a lot of the marketing about fat is just flat out biologically inaccurate. It's just, it's just literally fake news. It's bad information. There's no like one particular health expert that I'm pointing a finger at because it's a whole collection of information that promotes the consumption of fat rich stuff. And it tells you things like coconut oil is not only good for you, it's necessary for brain health. You have to eat fat in order for your brain to operate properly. Biologically false statement, completely false statement. Where did this information come from? I don't even know. Sometimes I, I open social media and I look at this stuff and I'm like, this is, this is a fairy tale. The stuff that like people are acting on and it's kind of embarrassing. 
you know, but that's just sort of like the state at which we currently are in today's world. There's more information than ever before, but yet there's more confusion than ever before. There's more disease than ever before. And it's unfortunate, right? We are more diseased than ever before. Yeah, we're more diseased than ever before. And, and it's, it's the problem is that it's so avoidable. It's so avoidable, but yet, you know, it's, it's a lack of good information that leads to confusion. And that confusion can then propagate into creating chronic disease, which ends up costing a lot of money and costing a lot of lives. It's, it's unfortunate. Now that I've got some clarity, because even some things, gosh, I've, I've dug, I mean, obviously I've read your book and I, I was so excited to have your conversation with you guys to really have a better understanding as a um, <laughs> biochemistry and, um, and, you know, genetic you know, major, double major, I was really fascinated by all of the research when you were looking at lipid metabolism and, and how that's playing a big role. I want to take an example of, of women, a woman that I see on a consistent basis where she's in her mid 40s, she's been putting on weight for years, it's been steady, but all of a sudden it kind of feels like it went off, it, it really went off a cliff. Progesterone and estrogen have dropped and her hemoglobin A1C is pretty much, let's say it's at a 5.6, 5.7. She's trying all the things, right? And, and one of the things that she's noticing, she's got a CGM on every time she eats sweet potatoes or anytime she eats, you know, grapes on their own, she is seeing diabetic range blood sugar spikes. So we're seeing, obviously we have a situation where we've got insulin resistance. And every time she goes on, you know, a more paleo protocol, she starts to see weight coming off. And so that ends up pushing her in that direction. And so, you know, how do we take somebody who's got definitely borderline prediabetes, insulin resistance, is definitely following the dogma of maybe paleo um, because it, at times it's working for her and is avoiding carbs, at least definitely processed carbs, no breads, no pasta, no rice, none of that. And is being a little tiptoeing around the, the fruits for sure. Because every time she eats them, she especially after 6 p.m., she sees a massive spike. So how do you start to move people, segue them in the right direction where they really start to bring in the plant-based carbs without seeing those types of spikes when they start to really heal and reverse that insulin resistance? And question two, especially at this particular age and demographic, 40s, 50s, 60s, can we reverse insulin resistance? Okay. I, I love this question. Okay. So number one- I know the one, answer to the second part of that question, yeah. but I so, want you guys yeah, to break it down. For sure. Number one. So the person who's in that position, first off, I want to say to that person, congratulations that you're putting in the effort. You're doing the work. You did some keto. You did some paleo. You saw some weight loss. You felt better. Like kudos to you for doing that. And most people, apathy is one of the biggest problems we have when it comes to health. And overall in this country, people are doing nothing, right? So I'm glad you're in that camp. You're putting in effort. So the first step here is to get educated, to really start to understand, okay, what is going on in your body? Why is this working? And is there another option that could work better? Or why am I seeing this benefit, but could there be other consequences that I'm not aware of? Right. And what this woman needs to know is that the benefits she has seen in losing weight on the keto approach, the paleo approach, that exact same benefit can happen if you follow a low-fat, plant-based, whole food diet properly, and you get the benefit of becoming more insulin-sensitive. 
and you get the benefit of increasing your micronutrient intake, your antioxidant intake, your fiber intake, which is a whole separate podcast. Yeah, that's that's sexy gut health right there. <laughs> you know, so you, this is what I like to say this all the time because you see so many people saying you see all these success stories about ketogenic diets on the internet. Nobody's going to argue with these facts, but I really want people to know those short-term benefits that you saw. We see those just as well when you follow a low-fat plant-based whole food diet properly, plus all the other benefits. So that's number one. And then number two, it's really important to see other people who have been in a similar place as you, who have gotten the results that you're looking for. So your story is making me think of a woman who came in our program. Her name is Tammy. She came to us. She was a little bit worse than the scenario you just painted, right? She had an A1C of 7.1%. She also had her fasting insulin level. So this is really important to come into a program knowing your fasting insulin level. So if you can get that tested, definitely do that. Fasting insulin was 17.4. That's very high. It really should not be above eight. Really should not be much lower than that, but 17.4 is very high. She is also using 2000 milligrams of metformin. She's already on a diabetes medication. Her A1C is in the type two diabetes range and her insulin levels are high. This is the exact state that Cyrus talked about earlier. Okay, this is the true classic insulin resistance. High blood glucose, high insulin, still having high A1C. So she comes into our program, she's kicking and screaming, she's trying her best, she's like really struggling, and eventually one day, she it really clicks. She's like, okay, I'm gonna do this. All right, I met with her at the farmer's market. She saw me buying oranges. She's like, really, you're going to eat all those oranges? I said, yes, Tammy, I'm going to eat as many, I'm gonna eat as many <laughs> oranges as I want. She had a separate conversation with Cyrus when she's at the grocery store. I mean, she was hearing the same things over and over again, but it just wasn't clicking. Okay. And eventually Cyrus was like, Tammy, just buy these ingredients Like, give this a shot. Like, let's see what happens. So she ends up diving in and in just seven months, just seven months, her A1C comes down to 5.3%. That puts her in the non-diabetic range. That puts her in the non-pre-diabetic range. That's right. Absolutely. So 7.1 to 5.3 in seven months. She stops taking metformin. So that 5.3 A1C, that's an unmedicated A1C. Fasting insulin level dropped to 5.2. That's good. That's where we want it. That's fine. Okay. This has all happened while she's eating more total carbohydrate from whole foods, okay? Potatoes, fruits, beans, peas, like rice. She's eating the, the Mastering Diabetes Method foods and enjoying them. She's she eating lost, rice, huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> she lost 38 pounds in uh, seven months. Her fasting blood glucose went from 123 to 93. She also reversed fatty liver disease. She also reversed debilitating pain in her knees. We have these great pictures of her not being able to hike a pyramid, not be able to like climb the pyramid. And she's just sitting at the bottom, overweight, unhappy. And then a year later, she's actually climbed to the top, feels amazing. Her body's not hurting anymore. And she just loves life. So yes, you can turn this around at just about any age. And it's never too late to start feeding your body in a way where you're reducing inflammation and becoming more insulin sensitive. Hmm. I would love to speak to, I, lo I love it. Again, and is it just, well, here's a question I'm wondering, you know, when you've got someone like Tammy, 
straight type 2 diabetes is on metformin, high levels of insulin resistance. Fasting insulin is in 17, very, very high. Do we do you cold turkey her or just is there a a stepping down process? We do not cold turkey anyone. <laughs> we do not cold turkey anyone because I was just because I want people to know cuz that's what they're thinking. Like yeah. what's going to happen? <laughs> for sure, for sure. So, before I before I go into cold turkey and wet turkey and whatnot, um let me just show you uh, an email that I received yesterday. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, "Hello Cyrus and Robbie. Uh you guys are amazing and I believe tr- that you are truly passionate and gifted at what you do." I am not part of your coaching program. So this is somebody who literally just picked up the book and did it on their own, which is mind-blowing about how effective this approach was. But I'm not part of your coaching program. I just bought your book and I watched your YouTube videos, okay? I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes on June 10th of this year of 2022. And my A1C at that time was 11.9%. That's very high. That's not just like a slightly elevated A1C. That's a real high A1C. That's a very high, yeah. That's like you had had diabetes. (laughs) Yeah, you've been living with diabetes for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so my A1C was 11.9%. And at that time, I literally thought my life was over. I changed my diet immediately after I read your book. And I did start to see a change in my blood glucose very quickly. About three months ago, I found you guys on YouTube and started watching your videos as well. Now, I've been plant-based 98% for about the last three months. About two weeks ago, I did my A1C and I got it tested at 4.8%. Okay, 11.9 to 4.8, that's a 7.1% drop. And my doctor was speechless, especially after I told her that I stopped taking that terrible thing called metformin. Okay. So this is another classic example of somebody who, who didn't, you know, Tammy took seven months. This wonderful woman took only three months. We have people going through our six week challenge that within a six week period of time, their A1C drops by 2%. That's a big A1C drop. In the evidence-based research, there are these papers that try and determine whether or not a diabetes intervention is actually effective or not. If the diabetes intervention can get an A1C drop of 1% over a 365-day interval, that is considered a wild success. And what I'm saying is that we can get you a 2% drop in your A1C in six weeks, okay? That's how powerful this approach is. So let's go back to cold turkey. Do you, t- do you teach people to go cold turkey? The answer is no, do not go cold turkey. And the reason we don't, we don't want people going cold turkey is, I guess there's two main reasons. Number one, there's three main reasons. Number one, it's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Emotionally, it's challenging to give up pizza and ice cream and cookies and cakes and crackers and pastas and sodas and say, you know what, I'm going to start eating a bunch of potatoes and fruits and legumes and whole grains. First of all, your tongue is going to hate it. Your tongue is going to be like, what the heck is this garbage? Where's the flavor? I don't like it. Give me my chips and pastas and sodas. Okay. So number one, it's very hard to do. And that's why it's important to start to kind of inch your way up over the course of time and give your tongue and your brain and your digestive system time to adapt. Number two, if you rush into it and you start to make a lot of changes, and even if you are able to stick with those changes for the first six weeks or for the first two months or so, you are likely not creating sustainable habits. Habits take time. It's almost annoying how how long it takes to create a habit. Okay, I'm sure everybody can relate to this, but in, in some way, shape, or form, you've tried to start an exercise habit. You've tried to start a meditation habit. You've tried to become more organized in your life. You've tried to create a communication habit with your spouse or with your best friend. 
and it just sometimes it doesn't work and then it doesn't work and then it doesn't work and it takes a lot of work and before you know you're like oh my god how long does this have to do this in order for it to feel automatic right the answer is depends on which book you read but for the most part habits take time and so what we found is that people who make the transition quickly they might be able to get a really good result and a lower a1c and a lower fasting glucose and a lower cholesterol but if you pick up the phone and you call them 6 months from now they're like oh yeah whatever like i just went back to doing the same thing that i did before because it was too much right i i just got overwhelmed right and i'm like okay well that's not a success as far as i'm concerned because you didn't take the time to create sustainable habits please slow down so literally in our program what we do is we teach people to slow down and it may seem weird but we know that if you approach this process in a very bite-sized format and you literally try and make like one change per week one tiny microscopic you know according to james clear atomic habit one of those per week they will accumulate upon each other and at a certain point you'll hit an inflection could be 3 months into the process could be 6 months into the process but all of a sudden you have this whole foundation of multiple atomic habits and before you know it all of a sudden you're like oh my god my lifestyle is totally different right so habits take time and then number 3 from a biological perspective people who are medicated taking metformin taking any oral insulin sensitizing medication and especially taking insulin whether it's basal insulin or bolus insulin these medications can be very powerful another form of medication that's very powerful is blood pressure lowering medication any any collection of those low, blood pressure lowering medications if you change your diet too quickly and you don't reduce your use of those medications those medications become very powerful too powerful in a very short period of time i'm talking within days or within weeks and as a result of that you can become lightheaded you can become dizzy you can become hypoglycemic you can become hypotensive and as a result of that your blood glucose can drop drop your blood pressure can drop and it can put you in a very dangerous situation which may send you to the uh to the emergency room so i do want people to understand that going cold turkey is biologically dangerous and that as a result of that we have designed a step by step system which is purposely uh, specifically designed to walk you slowly and take time and time is your best friend and just to add to that the, the book walks people through that process so there's two 21 day meal plans in the book you take a quiz you find out how insulin resistant you are and then you pick which meal plan to start with. So if you're on a very high in level of insulin resistance, you're going to start with a meal plan that's going to ease you into this a little bit slower and we adjusted the food so you don't have to think about it. But the 21 day meal plan is just changing breakfast the first week, then you're going to have breakfast and lunch the second week. So in the book like the lunch and dinner blocks are empty. They're empty on on the first week, right? You eat what you normally eat. like don't worry about it, just one meal at a time. Eventually you get to the third week breakfast lunch and dinner are provided we have the 30 recipes in the book and you just take it one step at a time and the book even tells you if you have to do week 1 twice because it takes you 2 weeks to transition to move into lunch that's okay however long it takes you take your time it's a marathon not a sprint here we are all about long term success other so so diet i know is the number one name of the game the biggest lever that you can pull here and i know that the book is really focused on that 
Could you also share, as people are segueing and kind of finding their way, obviously there's a lot of things that impact, you know, our blood sugar, impact metabolism. Are there other recommendations, other things that we could be doing, looking at as we are trying to heal insulin resistance, as we're trying to get our metabolism into a place where it's more optimized? Yeah, there's a lot more you can do. So plant-based diet is the foundation, number one. Okay. The mastering diabetes method is actually based upon four different principles. Number one is a plant-based diet. Number two is daily movement. Okay. When we say daily movement, I'm not talking, you know, high intensity, high intensity interval training class, six days a week for an hour. No, 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 no. Much smaller. Okay. Move your body to elevate your heart rate and make it so that it's challenging for you to communicate while exercising. That's it. Literally. That's it. Just sweat and make it so that you can't really hold a conversation with someone. It could be walking, biking, hiking, playing soccer, going to the gym. It could be some form of cardiovascular exercise. It could be resistance exercise. It does not matter. Just move your body. 30 minutes a day, six days a week. Okay. And, and you can, again, you can work up to that if you know, you haven't been moving your body frequently, but movement is a substitute for insulin. Movement does the same thing in your liver and muscle that insulin does. It knocks on the door and goes, knock, knock. There's glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it up? And both your liver muscles go, yes, give it to me right now. So that's a, it's a, you can think of exercise as a thing that you can do to get glucose out, out of your blood and into tissues. Do you guys recommend walking after meals or walking multiple times during the day to kind of help that movement, especially if someone's highly insulin resistant or they're showing diabetes or prediabetes just to kind of help? Yeah. So the answer is you could walk before a meal or you could walk after a meal. Both of them are effective, very effective. They will have slightly different effects. If you walk before a meal, that's a way of effectively priming your liver and muscle to accept glucose when it appears. If you walk after a meal, that's a way of stimulating glucose to get outside of your blood and into your liver and muscle. So it's a question of whether you want to, I, I think of it as whether you want to pull glucose into tissues or whether you want to push it into tissues. You pull before a meal, you push after a meal, right? And either way, both of them are very effective and they will help blunt elevated blood glucose after a meal. So it's up to you. You can kind of mix match between the two of them and both of them are going to work. The third component is intermittent fasting and intermittent fasting is not 100% required for any, you know, every, every person we teach people how to do it on a sort of, you know, as needed basis, but our general recommendations for the bulk of people living with insulin resistance is to perform a 16, eight daily intermittent fast, where you basically just cut one meal. It could either be breakfast or it could be dinner and, and the breakfast and dinner are the meals that basically are adjacent to sleep. And so if you do it that way, then you can get approximately 16 hours of fasting on a daily basis and approximately eight hours of eating on a daily basis. That change right there has a massive impact at helping you lose weight and also help kind of retrain your brain that when you're not eating a meal, that you're not hungry anymore. And all of a sudden you don't think about food. You don't ask for food. You don't want food. And so intermittent fasting is another thing that not only can help you lose weight, but it can also significantly increase your level of insulin sensitivity. And that is a very good thing because the more insulin sensitive you become, especially in combination with exercise and with a plant-based diet, um, it becomes a triple whammy. And the triple whammy is really where the true magic happens. And finally, the fourth thing is documentation. We created this, this proprietary tool. It's called the decision tree. And it basically helps you write everything down and collect it all in one place. And by using that, you're able to make sense of what the heck is happening to you on a daily basis. And when you do that, things become much clearer. 
Love it. I love documenting. That's great. And do you find, I mean, I know you've gotten so deep into the nitty gritty and nuanced research. And I get that when people are getting started, like some level of intermittent fasting, maybe even a circadian fast of 12 hours is moving you in the right direction. But in the research, have you found that one of the things that I'm playing with, with my little family is we eat before 6 p.m. Um, and the reason for that is that I, I've seen what happens after 6 p.m. On, on my body, on my 40-year-old body. And I know that our circadian rhythms are designed for us to be, you know, resting and relaxing. And I also love that gap between my last meal and, um, and bedtime to be about three to four hours. Because I really want my brain to go in and clean up shop. These are like the little nuances. But eating earlier versus eating later has some benefit to insulin sensitivity. No questions asked. No questions asked. So I love where you're going with this because effectively what you're doing is you're, you're inserting a time gap in between the end of dinner and when you go to sleep. And that time gap is really important because if you can get your blood glucose to be nice and controlled and low prior to going to sleep, then the chances of your blood glucose staying nice and low while you're asleep is fantastic. It's, it's much higher. And as a result of that, your A1C level, which is your average blood glucose will stay nice and low. So the stuff that happens in the middle of the night is very important. From a glucose perspective, it's important. From a body weight perspective, it's important. From an insulin secretion perspective, it's important. And creating that gap between the end of dinner and the beginning of bedtime is very important. And I'm glad that you brought that up. The last question, I mean, I have so many questions. We could do this forever, but I know we've been on for a while. <laughs> um, you know, I, I know that you two have both, you know, ha you both have type one diabetes. And as Bobby was saying, it is real time. You are watching and monitoring and, you know, and, and you know how much insulin is coming in the system. The majority of us without type one diabetes, we don't. And so obviously one of the ways that people are looking at, although Bobby pointed out that there are some, not misconceptions, but, but CGMs can lead us down a wrong path because because it may not be giving us all the information that we really need. But let's say we do understand that poor lipid metabolism, too much fat coming into the system is the baseline. It's, it's the foundation of insulin resistance. So we got that sense. And maybe we know that we do have some level of insulin resistance. And we see that every time we input processed carb, that, it, that, that obviously that hyperinsulinemia and, that, and the high glucose, because it can't get into the, into the liver and the, and, the, and the muscle cells, that we're starting to see those spikes come up. And so let's say someone is wearing a CGM and they know all of this now as well. Is there an optimal range of blood sugar that you would like people to see if they were tracking on a continuous glucose monitor? Knowing all the things that they know. For sure. For sure. Okay. So here's what I would suggest. If you go to the, you know, pop science and you say, Hey, what, what is an appropriate blood glucose range for a non-diabetic individual? What pop science will tell you what, what articles that are coming out literally like today and last week and the week before will tell you is that your blood glucose has to be in, in such an incredibly tight window that it's the only way to get there is by eating a low carbohydrate diet. So they'll tell you things like, a blood glucose spike is anything that happens, you know, 110 milligrams per deciliter or higher is a blood glucose spike. And that your glucose has to be between 85 and 110 for 24 hours a day. Or sometimes I even see it even smaller than that. It has to be between 80 and 100 and anything over that is considered a spike, okay? If you go into the research and you actually ask the same question, right? Hey, PubMed, show me what is a typical physiological normal blood glucose response in, you know, non-diseased individuals. The answer is, 80 to 140, sometimes 80 to 160. 
Okay. And you can see these diurnal variations that happen in people, you know, before a meal, after a meal, due to stress, due to sleeping, you name it. And it's totally normal for your blood glucose to fluctuate within a range of approximately 80 to 140 on a daily basis. And that is not suggestive of disease. That's actually, uh, those are in non-disease individuals. Okay. So what we teach people is we want your blood glucose to be within that approximate range. We say between 80 and 130, 80 and 140, somewhere in that ballpark. Keep it in that range as much as possible. And then you're going to be doing yourself a huge favor. If your glucose happens to go a little bit higher to 150, 160, 180, and it's there for a very short period of time and then comes right back down, don't worry. The area under that curve is so small that mathematically it's not going to contribute to a higher A1C value. What you want to avoid is your blood glucose going high out of that range and staying high. So it's the height of that peak times time. So when you go high and you stay high, the area under that curve becomes very big. And that large area under the curve contributes to a high A1C down the road. Uh, good. Good. No, it's really interesting. I, you know, That's the, then I just got to say, because like, it's one of the key tenets of what we're teaching here at Mastering Diabetes, okay, is that unfortunately in this world of insulin resistance, you know, diabetes, people are, they're looking at just one variable. They're looking at the CGM, they're looking at just their blood glucose, and they're missing a bigger picture. So get your A1C tested, understand what your fasting insulin levels are, get a bigger picture, and then decide whether there actually is a problem or there isn't a problem. And in most cases, there is not a problem. Oh, good to know. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, yeah, I mean, it's, I've worn a CGM on and off for a year and a half and I have kept my blood sugar between 80 and 110 and, and, and getting my, getting my 90% score and only seeing it spike. I remember one time we were heading to my mom's and I had a small, we thought it was just going to be an almond milk coffee. They added a sweetener to it. I had it. And the first time I'd ever seen a 150 spike was when I, I mean, it was obviously liquid sugar. It was an insane amount of, I'm not, I mean, relative to what I consume. And that was the biggest spike. Obviously it crashed back down. It would rise to 150 in 15 minutes and then it just slammed back. And so I was just really curious, like is, is above, if, if consistently above 130 is creating more of an inflammatory state. Should we, should we be aiming? And I didn't know if, if the research, you know, where we're okay with 140, if, if we weren't looking at some inflammatory markers in that range, Range. And so I, that's why I wanted to know, because I'm, I'm educating people that if we're seeing consistent spikes of 140, that's concerning. We got to look at something and that we really want to keep them. I always say the name of the game is keeping blood sugar as stable as possible. You want, you want, a, you want a flat lane down the highway. <laughs> so you do. You, you, in an ideal world, you want a flat line down the highway. But here's the thing. I want to I add an asterisk to the end of that statement. You want a flat line as much as possible, or you want the sort of like, technically speaking, the smallest amplitude of variation that basically just means like, you know, the height of, you know, the highs minus the lows is like, you know, relatively very, small, very small, right? So you want a small amplitude of variation, but you want to achieve that on a low fat diet. That's the key. That's the key. Got it. If you have to eat a high fat diet in order to keep your blood glucose flat, something is wrong. If you can eat a low fat diet, AKA a higher carbohydrate diet, and your blood glucose is still, your variation is very low. That is synonymous with insulin sensitivity. That is the point of the mastering diabetes method. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so you can't just drink straight vodka and canola oil to have a flat line and be good. 
I'm just I mean, kidding. you could. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure it'd be tasty. <laughs> All right. Well, I know you guys. Thank you so much for your time. We've gone way over. Um, I know I'm steering people to your New York Times bestselling book. It's in paperback right now. I'm steering them to the website. I'll even, I don't know if I can steer them to the program. You guys talked a lot about it. I know there's going to be some interest. I'd love to have a link that maybe steers them in that direction. Maybe it's the website. Yeah, it's easy. Masteringdiabetes.org slash start. Or you just go to the website, click personalized coaching in the navigation bar, and you can set up a free discovery call. We get on the phone with you. We talk and figure out what's going on. Can we help you? What's what's the right coach for you? What's the right program for you? And then we help you reverse insulin resistance through, again, slow, consistent, steady changes. We're all about long-term results. I love it. I just want to say, I'm just so honored to have you both on the show. I've been looking forward to this. And this is such great timing as we step into the holiday season, heading into 2023. Thank you for your brilliance. Thank you for digging in and spending time with me today. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Really appreciate you having us. And uh, can't wait for future conversations. Me too. Well, surprise, surprise. The biggest root cause of insulin resistance and diabetes is a high fat diet, which really spits in the face of a low carb keto protocol. So carbohydrates are the misunderstood boogeyman. And based on the research that Cyrus was speaking on just a moment ago, the answer to reversing insulin resistance isn't a low carbohydrate diet like a keto diet or a paleo diet. In fact, it's the opposite. The way to improve your blood sugar is actually to eat more carbs. Eating a high-carb diet is actually the key to reducing physiological insulin resistance, improving your insulin sensitivity, and getting high blood sugar spikes under control. And that's because even though eating carbs can raise blood glucose levels, this can be a problem at first, but over time, these carbs allow your body to burn through the excess fat and begin processing carbs correctly. However, this doesn't mean all carbs, right? That's what we talked about. Simple carbs like processed carbs, crackers, breads, cakes, artificial syrups, added sugars, and similar foods to that like will spike your blood sugar and don't provide any nutritional value to your body. Most of the time they are converted quickly into fat, which can cause weight gain and actually lead to insulin resistance. And this is all done through the liver. However, complex natural carbohydrates like those found in fruits and vegetables not only provide key nutrients that your body needs, but also are broken down much more slowly, giving your body the chance to process them effectively. These natural carbs are what's recommended as a part of the diet for getting your blood sugar under control. Now, as Cyrus and Robbie mentioned, shifting your diet does take time. I mean, the recommendations and the nutritional protocol that they're recommending is definitely a little intense, but also sometimes you need those intense measures to reverse severe insulin resistance, prediabetes, and diabetes. Now, if you're seeing the signs on the labs or if you're noticing, if you wear a continuous glucose monitor and anytime you eat that banana or that sweet potato, you see numbers out the roof, that is an indicator that maybe it's time to tweak and shift your diet. Now, if you're interested in learning more about their protocol and the deep science into understanding insulin resistance and mastering prediabetes and diabetes, I highly recommend going and checking out their New York Times bestselling book. It is now available in paperback, like as of a couple weeks ago. So it's even more affordable to get your hands on. And again, 
Even if you're not concerned about insulin resistance or you're not concerned about prediabetes or diabetes, but you just want to be healthy, I think this is one of those books that can really lend to giving you a better sense of what it looks like. I've read the book on Audible. I'm actually getting the book as a hard copy in just a few days because I want to look at those recipes. You know, it sounds very, very similar to my 14-day detox because a lot of the same recommendations they're making, I do as well. I just do it in 14 days, which again, has profound changes. But I always tell people at the end of that 14-day protocol that I highly recommend continuing it to continue to see really great results. And just note that it does take time to make these types of changes, to make them sustainable, because it could be such a very different way that you're eating now. Just met with my husband after I had the interview before I recorded this intro-outro, and I was talking to him about how I feel like we probably have a bit more fat in our diet than is supportive. And like, what can we do to integrate more plant-based? I'd like to tell you that I'm very plant-based, but I eat a lot of nuts and seeds. We, we have nut butters and I still eat fish and I do eat some meats as well. And when I think about it, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways that, we, that fat just sneaks in. My approach is not a full low carb protocol and my approach is definitely not keto either Um, because I think that plants are so, so critical to our overall health. But I think that we do lean towards a little bit more lower carb and probably more fat in our diet than is really serving us. And so I'm really excited to look at this book and to actually look at the recipes, look at the meal plan. I tend to not look at, listen to that kind of stuff on Audible because it can be so monotonous, but I am looking forward to seeing it in the real book. So I highly recommend if this conversation intrigued you and you wanna know more, get the book. It'll be in the show notes. The program will be in the show notes as well. And if you love these tips today, be sure to subscribe to the show for more easy ways to heal your hormones and to upgrade your health. And if you got a minute, leave a quick review so that these episodes are touching the lives of more people because that's what it's all about. Until the next episode, have an amazing day.